Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are reading Paul's first uh, letter to the Thessalonian church together. It is a letter that Paul wrote because he heard that that uh, very young uh, church that he had left much, much sooner than he wanted to was doing pretty good. So he uh, wrote with joy and relief to encourage them and to give them some instruction about things that they were wondering about. So. I'll pick up uh, at the end, near the end of uh, chapter 2. I'll read 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5. It's printed in the order of worship if you want to follow along there. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as always that as we uh, talk about this word together and think about it for a few minutes, that you would do uh, that thing that we're in desperate need of, that you would come and tend to us, uh, that you would shepherd us, that you would meet us in uh, the places where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, every single one of us, that you would use this word to show us the grace of Jesus, to show us your love for us more clearly, and that we would be changed by those things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Arthur Brooks, who is a uh, professor at Harvard, has been writing a weekly Atlantic column on uh, happiness and meaning for a little over two years now. It's called How to Build a Life. I'm guessing that maybe some of you have read uh, here and there in his writing or maybe heard him talk about this stuff uh, on a podcast at some point. I find his writing to be very generous and thoughtful and honestly kind of openly subversive. His last column quoted both uh, Augustine and Aquinas. Uh, and in that last column, he said that we live in a culture of hacking. And what he meant by that was all of that stuff uh, that people like us see on the internet from time to time. You know what I'm talking about? Like 50 life hacks that will change your life for the better, that kind of stuff. Those things pop up on the internet from time to time. We click through and we read timeless wisdom like Doritos make great kindling if you need to make a fire. You know, stuff like that. Really important stuff. 
And considering that environment, Brooks writes that lasting happiness comes from habits, not hacks. Lasting happiness comes from habits, not hacks. It is habits. And by that he means mindful uh, daily practices that deepen our wisdom, that strengthen our relationships, and that get at actual meaning in life. And this is absolutely true, I think. I mean, happiness is, uh, is a bit of a slippery term, but if you shade it with thicker words like contentment or joy or peace, then it becomes more obvious that these gifts from God are received and they are celebrated and they are maintained in our lives, not by any shortcut, not by any workaround, but by habits. And sometimes uh, in the long history of the church, this idea has been called the habit of faith. The idea uh, there is that our faith isn't just a uh, cerebral ascent to something or to a set of facts. Our faith is also the formation of habits that enable us to live the Christian life through and with the God who is our life. And this runs straight through the part of the letter that we just read together. Paul describes his thwarted desire to return to his friends in incredibly desperate terms. He wanted, as he says, again and again and again to return to those whom he had been torn from. And it wasn't because he had left some really important books back in Thessalonica. It wasn't because he left his favorite shawl there. It wasn't because he missed the peach cobbler at the local diner and he just can't find anything that good anywhere else. He wanted to see them again because, as he put it, what he wanted was to establish and exhort them in their faith so that none of them would be moved. If he could have stayed longer with them, he knows he could have had more time to train them in the habit of faith. If he could have stayed longer with them, he could have been certain that they had built into their lives these daily practices, these daily habits that would allow them to live out the long life of faith in a place that is hostile to it instead of moving away from it. And you and I can learn from this. you and I can learn about the critical necessity of cultivating the habit of faith in a world full of enticements to move away from it. So Paul begins in verse 17, we were torn away from you. The word that Paul uses there is a very powerful word, and I'm not exactly sure why more English translations don't try to get at it. The word he uses that we hear as torn away is usually the word that gets referred to being orphaned. We were orphaned, Paul says. We were orphaned from you. And in that metaphor, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they are the children whose parents have been taken from them. And the parents is that young church in Thessalonica. This is uh, highly unusual language. And like I said last week, you will not find anything quite like this anywhere else in Paul's letters, this level of deep affection. And this language, of course, speaks to his great affection for this church and also to how deeply troubling it was for him that he had to be taken away from them, that he had to leave before he would have ever wanted to leave. Chrysostom, the, the fourth century church father, wrote that Paul sought a word here 
to sufficiently show the pain of his soul. We were orphaned, torn away from you. And I, I think I want us to consider something here. <laughs> I mean, Paul knows that he can mediate his presence in other ways, right? He knows that he can write letters. He's writing this in a letter. <laughs> Paul knows that he can send uh, messengers. He sent Timothy. He sent this letter with a messenger. He knows all this stuff. But these are second or third best for him. Second or third best, barely passable substitutes for the thing that matters absolutely the most. We endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you, he writes in verse 18. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, wanted to come to you again and again and again with great desire to see your face. And church, I'm telling you, there are few things that matter more in the life of faith than seeing one another and spending time with one another. Prolonged presence and prolonged proximity with one another matters deeply. When you're with another person, when you are with someone, their actual humanity, the essence of who they are as a human being is only at one remove from the essence of who you really are, your essence and trueness as a human being. And when that happens, when two bearers of God's image are in the same place together, in physical proximity to one another, occupying the same physical space, when two bearers of God's image do that, there is incalculable power, mysterious power for our good. I mean, when that happens, when that happens, we can be comforted and we can be known and we can be challenged and we can be loved and we can know finally, I'm not alone. And we can feel solidarity and a hundred million other things that simply cannot happen as well or as deeply or as fully in any other way. Personal proximity matters being face-to-face -face matters, and I know that it's hard. And I know it's probably too much to always be tuned in to the power of it, to always be tuned in to the awesome presence of people who bear God's image in front of you. I know it's hard. You can't always uh, be tuned in to the God-bearing presence of the guy who's ringing up your groceries because you don't always want to fall apart just buying celery. But I'm telling you, that doesn't mean we, should train, we, should, uh, we shouldn't train ourselves in the habit of it. We should train ourselves in the habit of it. Because if we did, we would learn more fully and deeply what it means to love our neighbors like Jesus taught us to. Yeah, it's difficult, I know. And our, our highly esteemed values of travel and entertainment and leisure and all of the stupid technology that we're addicted to and the marginless lives that we have kind of backed ourselves into, all of that stuff conspires against it. But being together is part of the habit of faith. And it is critical to our good. And it's a habit that we need to cultivate.
And for his part, Paul is really, really blunt about why it didn't happen, why he wasn't able to be with them. Satan hindered us, he says in verse 18. Paul doesn't write about this stuff a whole lot, but where he does, he is very clear that from the beginning of the story of God and his world, there has been this anti-God force, Satan, the accuser, the tempter, as he will call him in a few minutes. There's this anti-God force whose sole work is to stand against God and to stand against the promises that God makes to people like us to stand against God's purposes for good in this world. And he does this by getting between God and us and trying to cut us off from him and make us doubt him, make us hate him, or just slowly forget him. And most of the time, church, most of the time, that getting between us and God and his good intention for us and his promises for us in the world, most of the time, that getting between is just in the air that we breathe. It's just in the current of the world that we live in. Most of the time, for people like you and me, it does not look like a horror movie. It does not look like a medieval poem. Most of the time, that getting in between us and God looks like Hannah Arndt said, it looks like banality and the everyday. And Paul tells us about this, not so that we will be afraid, but so that we will be wary and clear-eyed and wise and prayerful. And Paul, Paul doesn't piece together exactly what it looked like. He doesn't say, this is how I was hindered. I mean, it could simply be that the Plutarchs of Thessalonica, the ones who had said, you got to get out of here, also said to him, and don't come back or else, you know? But we don't know, and Paul doesn't care to tell us. The point is this, that there is other stuff going on in this world. Stuff that we can't see and stuff that we can't taste and stuff that we can't touch that affects us and affects the things that happens around us. And the effect of it all is to cut us off from the good promise of God for us. Now listen, God is not going to be thwarted in any way by this. His purpose, his promise, they will never be thwarted because Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension have secured all of the necessary victories to mean God will not be thwarted. But sometimes in our life of faith, the tempter hinders us. That's why Jesus, as we heard in the gospel lesson, taught us to pray against it. Sometimes the tempter hinders us, and we're going to have to, you and I, are going to have to work hard to get out of the current that is carrying us away from God and make our way back to the shore and start walking towards him again. That's part of the habit of faith. And it is a habit that you and I have got to cultivate in our lives. So Paul uh, was thwarted, and he tells his friends uh, about a decision that he made in Athens when he could not bear being away from them any longer. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, he says that he was willing uh, to be left behind in Athens alone in order to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. 
And at this point, I think that it is uh, pretty important for us to remember something because, you know, the, the way we read letters, we don't really think about all the chronology of stuff. I think it's important for us to remember that at this point, the church that was reading this letter, they already knew all of these details. <laughs> they knew about Paul's deep desire to see them and his inability to do so. They, they knew about Timothy coming. They knew why Timothy came to them. They knew what he came to do. And they know all that because uh, Timothy had come to them. <laughs> he had been with them. And no doubt, after the glad, joyful reunions that happened very quickly, they asked some pretty natural questions of Timothy, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and why are you here? And what's going on with Paul? And why isn't he with us? They knew everything that Paul is writing. They knew it because Timothy had, had told them. But here, Paul is setting it all down in a letter and he is sending it back to them. He is reinforcing a memory. So this, this part of the letter is much more formational for them than it is like informational. Paul is telling these facts in a certain way. He is telling them in a particular emphasis so that they will land and stay. He wants them to know something important from all of these facts, and that important thing is about the habit of their faith. We sent Timothy to you, Paul says, to encourage you. We sent Timothy to you to exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. That is the central concern of Paul in his absence from them, that they might be moved, that they might be thwarted and drawn away, and that is the central desire in sending Timothy to them, that they would not be moved, that they would not be thwarted, that they would not wander away. He says the same thing in a similar way in verse 5, repeating himself so that that memory gets concrete and it lands in that really important, beautiful way. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. I was afraid. I was afraid for you. So I, I sent to hear and learn about your faith. That visit from Timothy, that letter that they're reading right then, it's all about their faith. Paul wanted to learn about their faith. This is so important. I mean, maybe it's obvious, but let me make sure I say it. He didn't want to learn about the content of their faith because he had already taught them the content of their faith. So what does he mean? I want to learn about your faith. I want Timothy to exhort and establish you in it. He's talking about the habit of their faith. He wants to make sure that they can learn and that they will learn and that they are learning the critical habits of faith that will allow them to live that long life of faith with and under the God who is their life, that they won't be moved or drawn away. Paul talks about faith in all kinds of different ways, and they are all very important. Sometimes when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about the, the central events of the good news, right? That Jesus died, that he was resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins, and that through the cross, God is reconciling everything to himself in Jesus. 
That's the content of our faith. That is the facts of it. Sometimes when Paul talks about faith, what he's talking about is about people like you and me actually believing that content and resting in it by faith for, the, for our own forgiveness of sins, to find our own place in the story of the reconciliation of all things to God, having faith in Jesus. And then other times like here, Paul talks about faith in a very different way. He is talking about faith as continuing fidelity in the life that God has called us into. Sometimes he uses the image of growing in faith, continuing fidelity. We talked about this a little two weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of the letter back in chapter one, Paul called this the work of faith. Continued fidelity, not being moved, not being tempted by the tempter and wandering away, practicing the habit of faith. And Paul points specifically to suffering here and affliction here as a cause of wandering off and being moved, as in, wouldn't life be so much easier for you if you stopped saying you believed in this King Jesus and just try to fit in nicely into the sweet empire we have going on here? It's pretty nice. And if you did that, you would be beaten less, you would be imprisoned less, and you would suffer a lot less general derision from the populace. We don't, you know, we don't face physical trouble like these folks faced. That is just objectively true. We do not here in the West. There are other places in the world where Christians suffer trouble and affliction for believing in King Jesus. That's not our lot. But physical trouble is not the only thing that makes one feel dislocated and out of step. And I think we are increasingly learning what it means to hold faith that is not considered normal or even neutral in an empire that is just as violent in its own way to dissenters. And dissenters, we are. And it is seductive. And at times it would be easier, wouldn't it, to simply assimilate back into empire, to be moved, to be shaken, to wander away. And the only antidote to that church is to cultivate the habit of faith so that you have what you need exactly when you need it. C.S. Lewis uh, put it like this in his own uh, C.S. Lewis type way. <laughs> Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Now that I am a Christian, Lewis writes, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. <laughs> but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro. 
Consequently, Lewis writes, one must train the habit of faith. And I think this part of the letter is a great chance for people like us, for me, for you to ask, are we doing that? <laughs> are we habitually making use of the ordinary means of grace, worship together, confession, repentance, the sacraments, scripture reading, prayer? being with one another, learning together, working together, creating together, laughing together, crying together, serving one another and serving our neighbors together. Are we doing that? There are no tricky puzzles here. There are no lists to memorize. There are no hacks. There are no workarounds. There are only habits, habits of faith cultivated every day, nurtured every day to keep us tethered to one another and tethered to Jesus, who means good for us and who means good for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have kept and do keep us. And Father, we thank, the, thank you that you have uh, given us really ordinary and very simple things that allow us to cultivate life under your gaze and with you and for you and for one another. And we ask that you would make us a people happy to cultivate those habits so that we have what we need precisely when we need it so that we will not wander, so that we will not be moved and shaken and walk away. Keep us in the faith. Help us to do our part in that so that we would mature, so that we would grow up in our faith, and so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.